Um, uh, and I think that's all the announcements we have for right now. Let's go ahead and look at our sermon text that can be found uh, on the back of the bulletin, 1 Corinthians 4, 6 through 21, as Paul continues to chair, uh, to query the church at Corinth to ask the question, are you living in line with the gospel? Hear the word of God. Paul says, I have applied all these things to myself and Apollos for your benefit, brothers, that you may learn by us not to go beyond what is written, that none of you may be puffed up in favor of one another. For who sees anything different in you? What do you have that you did not receive? If then you received it, why do you boast as if you did not receive it? Already you have all you want. Already you have become rich. Without us, you have become kings, and would that you did reign so that you might share the rule, that we might share the rule with you. For I think that God has exhibited us apostles as last of all, like men sentenced to die, because we have become a spectacle to the world, to angels and to men. We are fools for Christ's sake, but you are wise in Christ. We are weak, but you are strong. You are held in honor, but we in disrepute. To the present hour we hunger and thirst. We are poorly dressed and buffeted and homeless, and we labor working with our own hands. When reviled we bless, when persecuted we endure, when slandered we entreat. We have become and are still like the scum of the world, the refuse of all things. I do not write these things to make you ashamed, but to admonish you as my beloved children. For though you have countless guides in Christ, you do not have many fathers. For I became your father in Christ Jesus through the gospel. I urge you then, be imitators of me. That is why I sent you Timothy, my beloved and faithful child in the Lord, so to remind you of my ways in Christ, as I teach them everywhere in every church. Some are arrogant as though I were not coming to you. But I will come to you soon, if the Lord wills, and I will find out not the talk of these arrogant people, but their power. For the kingdom of God does not consist in talk, but power. What do you wish? Shall I come to you with a rod, or with love in a spirit of gentleness? The word of the Lord. I have a question for you today. And the question is this. Are you proud? Now, that's kind of a loaded question, right? You're kind of searching in my mind. Am I? Should I be proud? Maybe you're proud of certain accomplishments, right? Like maybe you worked your way through a college or you've uh, 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 received some sort of award at work. Are those bad things? Well, I didn't ask if you're proud of something. I asked, are you proud? The definition of proud is having or cherishing an excessively high opinion of one's own merits. And the Bible has a lot to say about proud, about pride. Galatians 6.4, I think, is an excellent guide to thinking about pride, where it says each one should test his own actions. Then he can take pride in himself without comparing himself to someone else. See, it's the comparing that makes pride bad, right? It's through this comparing pride that evil entered into the world. 
Satan, who was a glorious angel in an exalted position, said, this isn't good enough for me. I have to be higher than God and rebelled in heaven against God. See, it's pride that's responsible for the destruction of relationships because of this comparative quality to it. The word pride in Greek is hubris, but in Latin is superbia, from where we get the word superb, which means the ultimate. In other words, if I believe that I am the ultimate, then I am greater than you, and therefore I am entitled for you to treat me in a way that I am greater than you. And this is exactly what we're seeing in the Corinthian church. People with an exalted opinion of themselves. People with the wrong sort of pride. So the question I have for you today is, are you proud? See, the thing is, proud people don't think that they are. They simply think that they see things the right way. So we must examine this question of our pride while looking at the Corinthians. Because pride and Christianity are like oil and water. You can have one, but you can't have both. And so we must choose what we want. For to be a somebody in God's kingdom, you have to be willing to be a nobody on earth. Paul discusses this and points this out to the Corinthians in three different ways. Number one, he asks a question. That's what we're going to look at first. Then number two, he presents an example. He asks a question, he presents an example, and then he talks of a power. So let's dig in with the first point, a question that he asks. Paul has been speaking, and he says in verse 6 that he has applied all of these things to himself and Apollos for your benefit, brothers, that you may learn by us not to go beyond what is written, that none of you may be puffed up in favor of one against another. Okay, he's been applying examples and so on so that they would not be, go beyond what is written. And when he's talking about what he's written, it's already what he's talked about and the scriptures that he's brought up. So throughout this, uh, the first part of Corinthians, he's been bringing up different passages or alluding to them. For instance, in, verse, uh, in chapter 1, verse 26, he told them, not many of you were wise according to worldly standards. Not many were powerful, not many of noble birth. He's actually referencing Jeremiah 9.23, in which the Lord says, Let not the wise man boast in his wisdom, let not the mighty man boast in his might, and let not the rich man boast in his riches. But let him who boasts, boast in this, that he understands and knows me. And so in verse 31, Paul says, let the one who boasts, boast in the Lord. Paul has been explaining what has been written, what God has already said about pride, so that the Corinthians would remember what God thinks about pride, so that they would not be puffed up in favor of one against the other. See, what's going on in the Corinthian church is it has divided into these factions, these different groups that are kind of vying for power and influence. And he's been titling them, he's been giving the example, I follow Paul, I follow Apollos, I follow Cephas. 
interpreters believe that there really wasn't a group of people following Paul or Apollos or Cephas. He's being kind. But there are these groups with these particular uh, leaders. And these groups and these leaders are puffed up. Think of that word, puffed up. It means to be inflated in the Greek. And we actually use this concept, don't we, when we think of proud people uh, in our culture, right? They have a big head. Or they, are, they think they're larger than life. It's ironic that Paul uses this term to describe them because they actually think that they are filled not with pride, but rather with the Holy Spirit. And the Spirit, of course, pneuma, which means breath. But they're not filled with the breath of God, but rather the breath of pride. Paul is saying, don't live that way. So you will stop favoring one against another. And so Paul continues in verse 7, and he sort of drives right at them. For who sees anything different in you? In other words, what do you have that you did not receive? And if you received it, why do you boast as if you did not? Paul is saying, look at yourself. What makes you special? It's not the world that really thinks that you're anything great. It's actually God that thinks you're great. It's God who makes you special. Remember in verse 27 of chapter 1 where he said, God chose what is foolish in the world to shame the wise and what is weak in the world to shame the strong. He chose you, a thing that is not to bring to nothing the things that are. What makes you special? It's God. And he brought you his grace. In other words, what do you have that you did not receive? It's by grace you have been saved, church. Think of Ephesians 2.1 that was read earlier. As for you, you were dead in your transgressions and sins and were by nature objects of wrath. But because of his great love for us, God, who is rich in mercy, made you alive in Christ Jesus. It is by grace you have been saved. Jesus uh, Christ gave us the grace, and he gave us his righteousness, right? The righteous record of his life as he took our sin upon himself and gave us his righteousness. 2 Corinthians 5.21, God made him who knew no sin to be sin for us so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. And it's God who gives us all the blessings that we have in our life, right? Philippians 4.19, and my God will meet all of your needs according to his glorious riches in Christ Jesus. Our provision, our clothing, our shelter, the air that we breathe, the sun that shines upon us, the rain which nourishes the earth, the love and the hope and the friendship that we experience are all gifts from our Heavenly Father. And whether you're a Christian or a non-Christian, the premise holds true. What do you have that you did not receive? Think of your own life. If you have specific talents and gifts, if you have athletic ability, did you create that? No, it came from your parents, and it came from their parents, and so on and so on, and leads all the way back to God. If you have intellectual ability and were able to 
go to school and to study and be in a profession? Where did that come from? It's a gift from God. If you're talented with your hands and you have learned to trade and you make your living that way, or you're an artist or you're a painter, where does that come from? It comes from God. James 1.17 puts it this way, every good gift and perfect gift is from above, coming down from the Father of heavenly lights. So why are you boasting as you did not receive it? See, the Corinthians are claiming ownership of all of these things in their life. They're forgetting that it's God who has given it to them, salvation and blessing. They're taking the path of the world and of the devil. See, the sad history of humanity is of a people refusing to recognize that everything good comes from God. It started with Satan. This is Isaiah 14, where it says, O day star of heaven, you have fallen from the heavens. You said in your heart, I will ascend to heaven. Above the stars of God, I will set my throne on high. I will sit on the mount of assembly. But you are brought down to Sheol, to the far reaches of the pit. It began with an angel and flowed throughout humanity. Adam and Eve, who are given every tree from the garden, and an exalted position as the uh, rulers over earth, yet it was not enough. They had to have what they were told they couldn't have. Think of the Tower of Babel in Genesis 11.4. Let us build a tower up to heaven and make a name for ourselves. Let us exalt ourselves. Think of the cities and the cultures that we build on planet Earth, all that are testifying to the glory of man and not to the glory of God. Romans 1.21 summarizes it best. For although humans knew God. They did not honor him as God or give thanks to him, but they became futile in their thinking and their foolish hearts were darkened. And the result was pride and boasting. Paul leaps into sarcasm in verse 8. Already you have all you want. Already you have become rich. Without us, you have become kings. And would that you did reign so that we might Share the rule with you. In other words, Corinthians, you already think that you have all the spiritual riches. And you've exalted yourself. You believe that you've arrived at the height of spiritual maturity. And in fact, you view yourselves as kings in the worldly sense. In other words, all belongs to me. In, world, in the worldly view of kingship, it's power and influence by which you can dominate others. See, the problem with the world is this. Everybody wants to be king. Think of that Tears for Fears song, you remember it? Everybody wants to rule the world. Imagine that I have a crown on my head. But imagine that you also have a crown on your head. If each one of us has a crown on our heads, each one of us wants to be king. And each, if each one of us wants to be king, we believe that the world should revolve around us. 
Can you see how this is tailor-made for disaster? And this is the problem with humanity. Yeah, I was, uh, last week I was in Naples, and I was flying back. And, uh, you know, getting on a plane and disembarking from a plane is, is a very interesting dynamic, isn't it? It's an exercise in patience. You have to wait your turn, right? And so especially when you're disembarking, it goes row by row because everybody gets out of their row, they pop, they get their suitcase, and some are faster than others, right? Some have kids that they have to get along. And for some reason, I'm always in row 28D. <laughs> I don't know why I'm always put in 28D. And so I'm sitting here waiting, watching, and seething. Because in my head, I'm going, don't you realize that I have some place that I need to be? Not ever thinking that every single one of these people have some place they need to be as well. Because everybody wants to rule the world. See, we're all tempted to follow in the path of the Corinthian church. How do we not fall into this overinflated, puffed-up view of ourselves. We must recognize, my brothers and sisters, that everything we have is a gift. And how do we do that? I have found that reading God's Word on a regular, daily basis helps to do this in my life. Hebrews 4.12 says this, For the word of God is living and active. It's sharper than any double-edged sword, and it penetrates to judging the thoughts and attitudes of the heart. See, I have a tendency to believe my own press about who I am. But God's word functions like a scalpel to show me that God is God and I am not to put him in his proper place, and to put me in my proper place. Jesus prayed in John 17, 17, Sanctify them, make them holy by the truth. Your word is truth. The Bible is described in, book, in the book of James as a mirror. And it presents an accurate picture if we obey it. But it says, do not merely listen to the word and so deceive yourself. For anyone who listens to the word but does not do what it says is like a man who looks at his face in a mirror. And he forgets. He walks away forgetting what he knows he looks like. But the man who looks intently into the perfect law that gives freedom and continues to do this, not forgetting what he has done, he will be blessed. So when I read God's word, God shines his flashlight into my soul, just like he did on the plane. Because what does the Bible say about how we are to treat one another? This was what the Holy Spirit whispered in my heart as I was seething. Philippians 2.3, do nothing out of selfish ambition or vain conceit, but in humility consider others better than yourselves. Each of you should look not only to your own interests, but also to the interests of others. So we need to read God's word, but we also need to examine our life. 
When I look at my life and how I conduct it, do I have a servant's heart? In the way I interact with my family, in the way I interact with my coworkers at my job, the way I serve people or not serve people in this church. See, we have a role and responsibility for building up one another in this church. We are our brother's keeper. Here's another way that we keep from falling into the path. Regularly respond with thankfulness and worship. Have you developed a daily habit of thanking God for what he's doing in your life? Both the good things and the hard things. 1 Thessalonians 5.18 says, Give thanks in all circumstances, for this is God's will for you in Christ Jesus. Maybe it's time to start what I call a thankfulness journal. It's a little notebook where once a day I write in it and I thank God for what he has done and who he is and what he's doing in my life. Another thing, responding in thankfulness and worshiping daily. When I take time to recognize who God is, when I lift up his holiness and his majesty and his greatness, I become smaller and smaller, and he becomes bigger and bigger. So in your car, when you're driving along, worship the Lord. When you're at your home, play music, worship the Lord. Answer the question, what do I have that I did not receive? It all comes from God. For to be a somebody in God's kingdom, you have to be willing to be a nobody on earth. This brings me to my second point. Paul gives an example. He compares and contrasts the Corinthians to himself to show how they have missed the path. In verse 9, Paul says, I think that God has exhibited us apostles as last of all like men sentenced to death because we have become a spectacle to the world, to angels and to men. In other words, we're not like kings like you think you are, Corinthians. We're last of all. And in fact, we find ourselves constantly under the condemnation of the world, getting blowback and kickback from the world because of the life that they're choosing to live. They have become as a spectacle to the world. The Greek word spectacle is theatron, from where we get the word theater. In other words, we're entertainment for the world. We're gladiators in the ring, condemned to die. See, he's challenging the Corinthians' perspective. They already see themselves as morally and spiritually perfected, without ever having to experience the bodily struggles that come with being a follower of Christ. The Christian life is not a fast track to glory, but a slow, arduous path that takes one through suffering. And this suffering is visible in the lives of the apostles and all who would take up their cross and deny themselves and follow Jesus. Far from us being given a crown to wear in this life, 
God has determined that all who follow Christ would suffer like Christ. Paul presents three different contrasts between the Corinthians and the apostles. We are fools for Christ's sake, but you are wise in Christ. We are weak, but you are strong. We are held in honor, but you in disrepute. In other words, you're so worldly wise, you follow the wisdom of the world, but we follow the wisdom of the cross, which says to deny ourselves, to be last instead of first, to serve rather than to rule. We are weak, meaning we live humble, dependent lives, servant lives for Christ, but you are strong. You're busy and focused on garnering influence and power in the world. We are held in disrepute. The world despises us, but you are lauded by the world. The world loves you because your Christianity is so watered down that the world accepts you as their own. Paul continues on to show the tribulations that the apostles are experiencing. To the present hour, we hunger and thirst. We're poorly dressed and buffeted and homeless. And we labor working with our hands, our own hands. He's saying, look, we're deprived. We're dressed in rags. Buffeted means to be struck like a slave is struck. We don't have a place to call home. And we have to work exhaustive labor to support ourselves. We're really putting ourselves out there as we follow the mission of Christ, and it is affecting us. Meanwhile, the Corinthians are happy and content. They don't appear to have suffered at all from the poor opinion of the world. They haven't extended themselves at all to take up the mission of Christ. They're financially well off. They're careful not to rock the status quo in their community. Maybe the Corinthians are not that different from Christianity in America, where it's so easy for Christianity to be an add-on to their lives, like a hobby or a club. But notice how the apostles respond to all of this. When we are reviled, we bless. When we are persecuted, we endure. When we are slandered, we entreat. We have become and are still like the scum of the world, the refuge, refuse of all things. What's he saying? He's saying when we are insulted, when people speak evil of us, what do we respond? How do we respond? With blessing and a good word. How different from the Corinthians who take offense when somebody speaks ill of them. When we are persecuted, we endure it. In other words, they bear up under unjust persecution. Where the Corinthians would be saying, this isn't fair. You can't do this to me. When they are slandered, in other words, when people speak falsely of them, they entreat, which means to reconcile, to go and be at peace. Unlike the Corinthians who, are, who have dissolved into these factions with one another, who refuse uh, and are slandering one another. 
He sums it up. We have become like the scum of the earth. Literally, that's the filthy residue that you scrape off of the bottom of the soles of your shoes. Now, why have the apostles put up with all of this? Because they understand that this is the path of following in the footsteps of Christ. It's Jesus who experienced the exact same things and responded with grace and forgiveness. Listen to 1 Peter 2.21. For this you have been called, Christian, because Christ also suffered for you, leaving you as an example so that you might follow in his steps. He committed no sin, neither was deceit found in his mouth. When he was reviled, he did not revile in return. When he suffered, he did not threaten, but continued entrusting himself to him who judges justly. See, the Corinthians have lost sight of it. They thought that they could have Jesus and the world, and you can't. Do we recognize that we are called to the same life as the apostles? Jesus said to them all, if anyone would come after me, he must deny himself and take up his cross and follow me. For whoever wants to save his life will lose it, but whoever loses his life for me will save it. Jesus is saying, if you want to follow me, you must lay down your life and your self-interest and pick up my life and my interests. And my word says to love your enemies. Treat others as more important than yourself. Not live for this world and its pleasures, but to live for the kingdom of God. To be an ambassador for me and faithfully represent me in the world with grace and truth. And I'm telling you that if you do these things, it will put you in the crosshairs of the world. Sociologists have still and you know, started and continue to study the phenomenon of Donald Trump. When you play the tape back to 2016 and Trump's character and record, he could not have been more unlikely of a person to become the poster child of Christian evangelicals. And yet he overwhelmingly got the vote of Christian evangelicals in 2017. How did he do it? Uh, it was the message that he communicated. And this is a good example of it. This is a speech that Trump gave at Dort College in Sioux uh, City, Iowa, a Christian liberal arts school. And as he spoke to believers, this is what he said. Christianity is under tremendous siege. And he cited as, a, as an example the big department stores that do not say Merry Christmas during the holidays. When they don't want to say Merry Christmas, he said, I won't shop at those places that don't say Merry Christmas. And here they are, they have a red wall and they have nothing on it. They don't want to say Merry Christmas anymore. I say, why don't you say Merry Christmas? Trump lamented that Christians do not wield as much political influence in the U.S. as they could. He said, the power of our group of people together, I mean, if you add it up, it could be 240, 50 million, and yet we don't exert the power that we should have. 
Trump vowed to change the department store situation when it comes to wishing people Merry Christmas. I tell you one thing, Trump said, if I get elected president, we're going to see, be saying Merry Christmas again. Just remember that. He said, and by the way, Christianity will have power without having to form. He added, because if I'm there, you're going to have plenty of power. You don't need anyone else. You're going to have somebody representing you very, very well. Remember that. Trump's message to Christians was, I will provide earthly power and influence. You're not going to get pushed around anymore. In fact, you're going to be able to do the pushing around. And it resonated with many Christians who were tired of getting pushed around and tired of things that we hold dear getting taken away. In other words, the spirit of Christians was it's time for us to take the driver's seat and here's a guy who's going to do it for us. And we're willing to put up with him if he'll get us what we want. Now, am I saying you should not have voted for Trump in 2020? No, I'm not saying that. But am I saying that you should not have voted for Trump if you did so because of his promise to give you earthly power and influence? Absolutely, I'm saying you should not have voted for Donald Trump for that reason. Because the kingdom of Christ does not advance through gaining worldly power and influence. It advances exactly the way it advanced when Jesus inaugurated it. Through dependence on God, suffering, and humility. And that's exactly what Paul is saying in this passage. The Corinthians bought that other message. And some of us have bought into it as well. And so you and I must recognize that the way of Christ is a path of rejection of the ways of the world. How do we follow this path? Obedience to God's word, not the world's word. And God's word says when we are reviled, we bless. When we are persecuted, we endure. When we are slandered, we entreat. Love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you. Is there someone at work that is an enemy of you for the gospel? Are you gossiping about them? Are you slandering them? Are you seeking to be reconciled to them, to bless and pray for them? There's a presidential election that's coming up next year. So how are you and I going to treat people that disagree with us. See, your social media account is an extension of you. It says what you value and represents you, and it never goes away. So how you represent yourself in social media is how you represent your Savior and how you represent his church. So as Colossians 4, 5 says, be wise in the way you act toward outsiders, making the most of every opportunity. Let your conversation be always full of grace, seasoned with salt, 
so that you may know how to answer everyone. So number one, obey God's word, not the world's word. Number two, turn in your reputation. If what people think about you is more important to you than following Jesus, there is no place for you in the kingdom of God. Jesus put it this way in Luke 14, 26. If anyone comes to me and does not hate his father and mother, his wife and children, his brothers and sisters, yes, even his own life, parentheses, compared to following me, he cannot be my disciple. Paul said in Galatians 1.10, For am I now seeking the approval of man or of God? Or am I trying to please man? If I were still trying to please man, I would not be a servant of Christ. My friends, I don't need to tell you that life is difficult. That many situations are complex. The answers aren't always as cut and dry as we would like. But if you make a decision that as best as I know how, I'm going to honor Christ above all, no matter what, you're making the right decision. Ditch your reputation and embrace suffering. Embrace suffering. If you are going to fight against evil, you will suffer. If you are going to seek to live a holy life, an obedient life to God, you are going to suffer. I think it was C.S. Lewis, right, that no man knows how hard it is to be good or how bad he is until he has truly tried to be good. You will suffer trying to walk in holiness, walking as Jesus did. When you deny yourself and your flesh's desires and serve others, you will suffer. When you make a decision to lay down your life, and to give life to others, you will suffer. And when you reject the values of this world, you will suffer. John puts it this way, 1 John 2.15. Do not love the world or anything in the world. If anyone loves the world, the love of the Father is not in him. For everything in the world, the cravings of sinful man, the lust of his eyes, and the boasting of what he has and does comes not from the Father, but from the world. And the world and its desires pass away. But the man who does the will of God lives forever. Make a decision in your earthly conduct to reject the ways of the world. Because to be a somebody in God's kingdom, you have to be willing to be a nobody on earth. This brings me to my final point where Paul speaks of a power. Paul has been chastising the Corinthians. And in verse 14, he says, I'm, I'm not writing these things to make you ashamed, but to admonish you. Because even though you have countless guides, you only have one father in the gospel, and that is me. And so I am coming. And some are arrogant as though I were not coming to you, but I will come soon. And I will find out not the talk of these people that are stirring up trouble, these arrogant people, but their power. For the kingdom of God does not consist in talk, but in power. See, my friends, the way of the kingdom is the way of power. 
Wait a second, Carlos, you just said that power is bad. No, I said worldly power is bad. There is another power. The power that God's give, God gets. And when you do God's will, in God's way, you will never lack God's resources. See, Paul is saying these troublemakers who are stirring this up, I will confront them with grace and truth. Not with the world's way, not with slander, not with force, but rather the power of God. See, you guys need to understand and know that God's ways always win in the end. Look at the cross, a symbol of torture and execution. People have tried to stamp out Jesus Christ and his word and the gospel for two millennia. And yet it continues onward and upward. The kingdom of God is like a pinch of leaven thrown into flour and it expanded until it covered all. See, the kingdom of God works in the exact opposite way as the kingdom of the world. The greatest is the servant of all. The one who is first will be last. This world is passing away, but the kingdom is advancing. And so if you want to have an effective life, a life that has power in the right way, a life that impacts the world for the kingdom of God, Embrace the cross. Embrace humility. Embrace love and sacrifice. And you will see God's power at work in your life and in this world. For to be a somebody in God's kingdom, you have to be willing to be a nobody on earth. Let's pray. Father, let us not fall prey to the wisdom of the world and its empty promises of power and influence and satisfaction. Jesus, you are the way, the truth, and the life, and you call us to pick up our cross and to deny ourselves and to follow you. God, give us servants' hearts. Give us zeal for obeying your word. Help us to cling to your gospel and let it be our source of riches and joy. And use us and this church to transform the world. We pray all of this in Christ's name. Amen.